nice to hear everyone's voice coming up this way. It's just, uh, just kind of gets you going, like thinking about the Lord, appreciate the, the music team and their talent and how they lead us and how they just bring us together. Let's go ahead and pray before we look into God's word. Father, we thank you for our gathering. I thank you for each person here and what they mean to you and what they mean to this church and to all the rest of us. And Father, I pray that uh, as we look into your word, that we may grow closer to you, that we may understand you better, that we may represent you in even a better way. And Lord, that um, we could see others come to know you and, and learn your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever tried to play a trick on somebody by pretending you were someone that you weren't? You know, maybe a prank phone call or knocking on someone's door and disguising your voice. Well, you know, there's times I've gone to Carmen, our daughter's bedroom door, and I'll knock on it, and she'll say, who's there? And I'll say, your mother. And she goes, Dad, I know it's you. What can I say? She's just too smart for me. But I believe something like that is taking place in our society. And here's what I mean by that. As we move as a society further and further away from a belief in the God of the Bible, and further and further away from any respect toward the Bible as the Word of God, then in a sense, what we are doing as a society, we are putting ourselves, humanity, in the place of God. If we're leaving him out, then we have to make our own decisions on what is right and what is wrong. Make our own decisions on what are good values. We have to establish our own morality. And as a society, we start believing in things that just a short time ago we knew were absolutely absurd and now so much of our society is believing in it. But you know, if we know the eternal truths of God and his word, then those false voices out there will be as easy to see through as the voice I used to try to fool Carmen. So we've been traveling through the New Testament book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, and we've come to the part where the Apostles are moving out past Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and heading out to the nations of the world. You know, hitting the closest ones first and just keep moving out. And in our journey, we've seen Jesus Christ at one time, going back a little bit, we saw Jesus Christ slam Saul of Tarsus to the ground with a light from heaven, that left him blind and unable to see, had to have, hold somebody's hand just to walk for three days. And Jesus told him while he was on the ground before he, he got up, he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, get up, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. Is there any question there who's in charge? And you know, from that moment, I mean, 
Paul, the, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, was a strong, you know, headstrong person. He did what he decided he was going to do. But then from that moment on, Saul of Tarsus had absolutely no doubt who was calling the shots. Jesus Christ is now clearly in charge in his life. But that's where we're moving away from in our society. And as we move forward, as <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas are taking the gospel message you know, westward from the, the Holy Land, moving out towards, towards you know, eventually the Europe, European nations, we see Paul and Barnabas and they go to the island of Cyprus where Paul struck a sorcerer blind, a, a magician. He struck him blind by the power of the Holy Spirit because this magician was trying to prevent Paul from giving the gospel to the, to the proconsul of Cyprus. Actually, it was uh, Paphos. They had just come from Cyprus. And when the proconsul saw that his court magician, who he was held up in pretty high esteem because they thought he could do magic and all that, and the, all the people just kind of venerated him, when they saw that he was blind and helpless because of what Paul did, the proconsul turned to Jesus Christ as the one for salvation, as the one who was in charge. And there's no denial of God in that scenario like we're seeing in our day. But here is our question as we start looking into our passage. Is there any sensibility at all to think of denying the existence of God, of the God of the Bible? I mean, do people have any kind of reasoned, you know, you know good reason to do that? Well, let's look at these first, thir these first uh, oh, 13 to 20 of chapter 13 in the book of Acts. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. That was common what they would do when visitors would come to the synagogues where these were Jewish worship places where they were outside of Jerusalem. And if people were traveling and they were believers in their faith, in the Jewish faith, they would offer them a chance to get up and speak words of exhortation. And so that's what they're doing to, to Paul and Barnabas at this point. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, which wasn't good, as we know. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. 
All this took about 450 years. So here's what's going on here. Paul is taking, as he's speaking to these people in the synagogue, he's taking them back to the time of Israel's Egyptian slavery. He tells them how God led them out of Egypt with his mighty power as he decimated the Egyptians because Pharaoh would said he would not let them go. He tells them how God endured their disobedience throughout their wilderness travels for 40 years. He tells them how God overthrew seven nations in the land that he was taking them to so they could take over that land. Now, why is Paul telling these Jews in Antioch this history of Israel? Well, what he's doing is he's taking them through God's plan for their nation. And this passage shows that God had it all planned out beforehand. Everything that has happened through that history of Israel, God had it planned out from the beginning. He was working toward and with a very specific plan. And that is why he contacted Moses at the burning bush, isn't it? Moses, I have a job for you. And Paul is putting these pieces together of God's plan for these worshipers at Pisidia and Antioch so they could understand how things are moving and why they're moving this way and what is going on. Now Paul moves from God taking Israel from Egypt to Canaan to the way he provided leaders for his people. These are the next few verses. The end of verse 20, it says, After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, of, Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's in, uh, instead of Saul. <laughs> so God sent Moses to rescue his people in Egypt. You know, they were a, a large family of 70 people moving down to Egypt. And when they came out, they were like 2 million strong. And God then gave them specific leaders to lead them as they were going out to start their own nation. Now you think of Saul. You know, Saul was this big, you know, towering above everybody else, bigger, stronger. He was a warrior. If you were looking for somebody to lead a nation and to lead the army, you would see Saul and you would say, the search is over. I mean, this guy's huge. And it was that he, he was a mighty warrior. And he did win some significant battles. But there was a major deficiency in Saul. He wasn't totally dedicated to God, was he? Saul was very concerned for his own image. He was fearful. He did things really to just try to keep the people for him. He made his decisions to exalt himself. And we know the story, a lot of us, most of us know the story, how he tried to kill David because he saw him as a threat. As his reign continued, his self-image preoccupation 
basically took over and destroyed him. And then it says that God gave his people David. He says, David will do all the things I want him to do. Because he was a man after God's own heart. Now, you know, we know that David was not perfect by any means. Um, he did some horrible things. But, you know, David's overall outlook was to serve God. And he always kept that connection to the Lord. He knew that only God was his source of strength and wisdom and direction and victory. And when he did wrong, he repented in deep grief and sorrow. And here, I think, is a major life lesson for Christians, for us. You know, when we look for someone for a certain task or to be, to be rely upon or for a ministry or whatever, you know, you look for talent in the area that you're looking to, for somebody to, to take uh, over. You're looking for competency, skill. But in important things, we dare not neglect a person's devotion to follow God. Is this person a person with the heart after God? A heart after God's own heart, meaning we want the same things that God wants. You know, our heart connects with God's heart. We want to do the things that please God. Wouldn't that be good marital advice? To treat our spouse, raise our children in ways that please God, in ways that bring honor to God. You know, there's all kinds of things out there that we can read, books we can read about, you know, good things to do with your children and that sort of thing. But underneath it all, Aren't we there to raise them in a way that pleases God? How about our choice of marriage partners? Don't you want a marriage partner whose heart is a heart after God's own heart? How about the way we work at our jobs? How about the kind of friends we are to others? How about the kind of neighbors we are to those in our neighborhood. Christians are to be people after God's own heart. We are to want the things that God wants, our heart being after God's own heart. And like I said earlier, our society is moving in the completely opposite direction, and it's causing us all kinds of problems. People have lost their, you know, our, our nation as a, as a whole has lost its high view of God and the Bible. You know, a long time ago, not, not so long ago actually, everybody used to call the Bible the good book, even people that didn't even never, ever open it. They just knew it as the good book. And they knew it was, there was good in there. And a lot of people that knew that it was good in there didn't want to open it because they, they knew it was good. But now people don't call it that anymore. I mean, you don't hear that much anymore. And then now look what God's choice of David leads to. David, a man after his own heart. In verses 23 through 25. 
from this man's descendants, David, of course, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And John the Baptist was completing his work, and as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Basically, he's saying, I'm not worthy to be his servant. So we see in Paul's teaching the plan of God unfolding. He's going back to you know, Egypt and he's taking him through Israel's history. And we see it unfolding in you know, amazing ways. You know, things that you would never dream up if you were taking a nation through its growth and what it would do. But it all fits. And we've, we've seen the records of it. They're all historical facts. But none of us would ever have been able to put this plan together if we were to choose a plan for a nation. And all the things that God took them through and helped them through and saved them from, God did it by his unfathomable wisdom. And so we have God who thinks of things that would never even come into our minds. And so he's so far above us in wisdom. I mean, we don't even, we, don't, we can't even get on the same scale. And yet, people today look at things in the world and they say, why would God allow this? Why would God allow that? You know, as if our puny minds could improve on God's plan. I've heard somebody say, as they were being interviewed, they go, come on, look at the Bible. We're so much better than the way God was leading them. You know, it, it almost seems like as a society, I'm just talking about our society as a whole, not really the church, we feel we can put God on the witness stand and drill him with questions and demand that he answer our questions. You know, you see that in people's attitudes, and you see that as people just walk away from God. But we have it backwards if we think that, don't we? We got the exact opposite as the way it really is. You know, uh, when I was growing up, and, and my mom would tell my, me and my little brother to go do something or do some of our chores or whatever, and we'd whine about it, <clears throat> And she would use these last two, ver last two lines of a, of, a, of a poem. I didn't even know it was a poem until just a couple years ago. But she, and you've, you've heard all this. She says, yours is not to reason why, yours is just to do or die. <laughs> okay, Mom. <laughs> but, you know, that's more of the right attitude. But people today, you know, as we move God out of his throne, we put ourselves as a society on the throne. And it's not going to work. And we see it's not working. 
But now I want you to look at Paul's amazing answer. We're going to be reading through a long section here from verses 26 through 43. And watch how Paul answers this. He says, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet, and, and listen to this, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Isn't that amazing? Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Shows you how corrupt they were. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. That would be the disciples. And they are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David, never subject to decay. I mean, when's that ever happen? So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. It was prophesied. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. So it couldn't be David he was talking about. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification, which means to be declared righteous a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets have said. Paul's preaching this to these people. Take care that this not, does not happen to you. Or this prophecy. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Paul explains in that passage how the death of Jesus was completely unrighteous and evil, that Jesus was prophesied in their scriptures, the ones who killed him. He was in the line of David, from whom the Messiah was supposed to come. He had a prophet of God announcing his coming. But certain authorities in the Jewish religious system would not even consider him. These were the powerful people. These were the ones who had everything set up to serve them. And they were going to have this this unknown person come in and change the system. They had set up the whole system for themselves. They were the ones who were, everybody went awed at, you know, and they, they wore those things on their foreheads, the verses and stuff. 
but they had all the power. And you know, for some people, power is like a drug, isn't it? And people will go to crazy lengths to gain it or keep it. Jesus' preaching did not appeal to these kind of people because they saw him as a threat to what they had worked for, the prominence that they had achieved, and the elitism and the rule that they now had. But Paul said, in their condemnation of him, as they condemned Jesus, and they did such a horrible, evil act, they actually fulfilled the words of the scriptures, the words of the prophets. So you see, what Paul is doing as he's standing before these people in the synagogue, <clears throat> he's telling these people in Antioch, the promised one has come, and he fits all the scriptures. He fulfills the scriptures. His betrayal and death fulfills the scriptures. His suffering and rejection fulfills the scriptures. And then because he was righteous and all he did and who he was, God raised him from the dead. You see, Jesus' resurrection proved that he was sinless because they killed him saying he did some crimes. Of course, they couldn't name any. But when God raised him from the dead bodily, it proved that he was righteous and he was the Son of God. So you see, Paul's going back and he's explaining all these things to show that Jesus is the prophesied one come to save. And then, again, verse 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, I say this all the time, but you know, when you ask people if they, you think they're going to heaven or what, it, what does it take to get to heaven, they always think of how much good I've done and, and hopefully how little bad I've done. But they're always thinking on that, that line of reasoning. But see, it's forgiveness because we've all done wrong. Everybody's done wrong, right? And what we need is not to outdo our bad works. That's what I used to think all the time. What we need is to take away our sins. Because sin, you know, we have to be righteous. And the only way to be righteous is through Christ's righteousness. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's the only way you get forgiveness. And that's the only way we can be right before God. Everyone who believes. And then verse 39. Through him... Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification, and that word again, justification, means that God declares you righteous even though you aren't righteous. <laughs> but you're, you're connected by your faith. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. That would have been the works pathway, right? Weren't able to obtain it through the works pathway. So everyone who believes, and it just doesn't mean some little faint thought of, oh, I believe it. It means we place our faith, the, the, you know, where, our, where we're going to be for eternity. We're, we're placing that faith in Christ's death on the cross. 
who saved us who were lost in sin. That we can't do it on our own. We'll never be good enough. Christ's death on the cross, he did that to pay for our sins. And if we trust in that, if our hearts go out to him in that way, then we are saved. It's being declared righteous. It happens through faith in Christ and his death on the cross. And that's our glorious message, isn't it? You know, we would never even be able to to dream up this plan of salvation. Because when you tell most people, they, they they don't understand it. It's too good for us to even imagine it. The sinless son of God took on our punishment for sin. And after his horrible suffering, he declares us righteous (laughs) through faith. And it's only because of his suffering and his righteousness. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, who wants to set aside God's brilliant, loving, self-sacrificing plan of salvation and just try to work your way to heaven? No takers? You know, it's really mind-boggling to think of how God put the whole plan together and put every sin on his son so that we could have his righteous standing. And now we'll just look at the end of our passage here. We'll read through it. And what we're going to see at the end of the passage again is what we've been seeing all the way through when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And the rock is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Upon this belief I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. Showing that the gates of hell will be trying to stop it. So let's look at verses 44 through 52. It says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now, there were Jews in there that were believing, but then there were Jews outside of there that were angry at them coming. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, see, they're making their own choice, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women, here's the gates of hell opening up, incited the God-fearing women, and that just means people who you know, attended the, the worship services and all that kind of stuff, attended the, the uh, synagogue, of high standing and the leading men of the city, They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. 
And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ building his church on the foundation of him being the long-awaited Messiah, Son of God. And with the existence of Satan and evil in this world, there is going to be this ever-ongoing battle of Christ versus the armies of hell. And everywhere the church goes, the armies of hell try to put things in our way and try to stop us and try to take us away from it. It's through persecution, through lies, through power grabs, through taking people captive. Satan is always working against God's plan and God's people. But we are on the side of ultimate victory against all earthly odds. We don't need earthly odds if we stay connected to God's heavenly power. Christ will and is building his church. And then here's the truth of the matter. Christ is building his church. We saw in this passage, Paul explained how God had the full plan in his mind right from the beginning. And we know we are on the winning side because Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for your plan. Father, we are just uh, amazed at those who are in the world suffering for following you and how brave they are. And we want to pray for them, Lord, to strengthen them and to help them. And we, we just thank them for being the ones who are willing to suffer. And Father, we pray that you would help us to draw closer to you and always stay true to you and encourage others and reach others with your love. We thank you for the whole history of, of your plan and how brilliant it is and was. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.